Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR and this podcast forms part of our special summer series on European strategic sovereignty. We are talking this week about the technology war between China and the United States and what it means for Europe. And to help us make sense of this enormous subject, I'm joined by three amazing experts. Down the line from Brussels, we have Andrew Small, who's a senior transatlantic fellow at the German Marshall Fund um, and has been one of the leading lights on their China program for many years. Joining me from Stockholm, we have Tim Ruish, who is a research fellow at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, who is an expert on Chinese foreign policy. And from Washington, we have Amy Studdart, who is a senior advisor at the International Republican Institute and founder of Villager, which is a tech startup. So she um, may be physically in Washington, but spiritually in Silicon Valley. Andrew, why don't you kick off and, and tell us what's happening in the relationship between China and America, and where does tech fit into that bigger picture? Sure. Delighted to be able to join you. Um, so I think we've basically moved from a situation early in this administration's term um, where everyone was uh, getting ready for uh, a trade war that would be largely characterized by escalating uh, tariffs and Trump's effort to reduce the bilateral trade deficit uh, to something that has moved into a far more comprehensive effort on the U.S. part um, to engage in a series of efforts to restrict Chinese access to uh, U.S. technologies in, in a whole series of different spheres. The biggest area in which we're seeing this is not actually just in the classic trade front, but in export controls and foreign investment restrictions. The Commerce Department and uh, Congress have put in place a series of, of different measures that um, essentially attempt to identify and control um, a whole series of what they're calling emerging and foundational technologies that are deemed essential to U.S. national security. So, Tim, you've been looking at this from the Chinese side as well. How, how are they responding to it? Oh, I think uh, they're really concerned about what's going on. I mean, we China has seen with the after the financial crisis uh, a decade ago, uh, that it is vulnerable to the development of the world economy. Uh, and it has started to rethink its own economic policy, but it's also sliding into what it, everyone in Beijing refers to as the new normal. So slowing growth rates uh, more generally. And I think that, that has been a development that took shape long before this tech confrontation we're seeing at this moment. And development of new technology and being for the very first time the digital economic innovative leader in the world was sort of the major way out of this complicated situation uh, from the Chinese perspective. And now they are really facing severe challenges from the US, from Europe, uh, from the world. And I think they're taking that really serious. So I think even the trade war as such seemed, uh, as Andrew just sort of indicated as well, seemed to be an uh, aspect that was manageable, that brought a contact with more systemic rivalry here, I think really concerns. And what I think they rightly see that what we are turning to 
is a geopolitical dimension of this that uh, plays out in security terms, in, in economic terms, but also in terms of systems confrontations. And I think in that regard, the U.S. and the Chinese perspectives are kind of similar, though, uh, obviously, from opposing uh, viewpoints. And how desperately worried should we be about what this means for technology, Amy? I mean, you spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. We've been talking for ages as think tanks about how technology is changing politics and changing geopolitics. I mean, in the future, it looks like geopolitics might also change technology. Yeah, that's a great question. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. I think one of the things that's really missing here and one of the ways in which all of the powers involved in this tech war are losing is that engineers and scientists and technologists don't really care about geopolitics. They care about getting to the moon or getting to Mars or curing cancer or coming up with you know the cool new technological solution to whatever. And so what you're seeing is this competition that's playing out at a geopolitical level that technologists and engineers and scientists are looking at and saying, we just want to go to the place that has the resources and the investments that allow us and the openness that allows us to do the work that we've always wanted to do. Those motivations have gotten lost in the conversations, which are generally between the big technology companies, which are primarily companies looking to make money not engineers or scientists looking to advance technology, and then the other economic actors involved and the geopolitical actors involved. Can you describe a little bit about how these two worlds have coincided? What does it actually mean in practice for people living in Silicon Valley at the moment? A lot of Chinese scientists are kicked out of the country, having their visas revoked, generally coming under a lot of pressure here, here in the US, which is leading the scientific community in general to be quite upset. You're seeing restrictions on the extent to which scientists can collaborate with one another, um, restrictions in sensitive technologies, but also just in technologies that um, may or may not lead to national power because being at the forefront of a technology is a useful thing in geopolitical terms. So you're seeing a lot less collaboration. You're seeing scientists and researchers being limited in where it is that they can work and the resources that they have access to. Um, and for uh, for technologists and for companies, that's a a really bad situation because one of the things that's led to the leaps forward that we've seen has been that we haven't had this techno-nationalist framework, but what we've had is this global collaboration between scientists in Europe, China, the US, and really all over the world. So how do you guys think this is going to play out? Andrew, you talked about decoupling before. Is that just a slogan or is it actually realistic in 2020, 2021, 2022 to see globalization seriously unraveling? Well, some of this is already happening. Some of the people involved in policy on the US side is that simply by introducing this level of uncertainty for a sustained period of time, you force the firms themselves to start making a lot of the decisions about where to locate their facilities, how to approach their supply chains, um, and so on. I mean, if this had all been resolved in some a big deal between the two sides in the first year of the administration, um, then we might be in a different place. Um, in practice, uh, the, the, I mean, we, we still don't even know where things are going to come out precisely on, on Huawei now. But if you're any firm looking at the evolving situation here, you're already having to make uh, decisions that are premised on an ongoing level of high uncertainty about the US-China trade relationship, the US-China technology relationship, access to components, restrictions to components and so on. So this is already um, having an impact on where firms are locating their production facilities, moving um, out from China in significant um, 
uh, levels in, in certain sectors. The question about this is this hasn't necessarily been a concerted and clear decision that has been taken on the US side that has, I think, undertaken a full appraisal of uh, the economic risks, uh, the, uh, the, the implications for innovation in the US, any of these things. In, in a sense, it's been a sort of rolling, ongoing process with different moves coming um, out from different bits of the administration um, and firms um, having to respond in, in to, to some moves that are, in some cases, quite unpredictable. We certainly saw that with the Huawei being put on the entities list, for instance. Where this actually settles, I think, is still not entirely clear, but I think an element of decoupling has already started to take place. No firm can now plan to have the level of of integration that that was there before. Some of this is, as it were, on trend. I mean, there is already... Um, this this is already pushing firms to make decisions that they, in some cases, were willing to make anyway. Labor costs rising in China, uncertainty about the overall economic situation there, IPR, IP theft, all of these sorts of things. So what does it mean for Europeans then? Because Huawei is the thing which has been dominating the headlines. I think the Europeans have been really caught in a very difficult situation here. Indeed, as you mentioned, they have faced pressure from both sides. Particularly in the beginning, I think Europeans were really not united on this. It was not clear. Poland took a very different stance, for example, in Portugal, and that was a real challenge. And I think that uh, if there's positive news in the developments over the last few months here is that uh, a discussion and and, and the the need to have a common European approach is actually uh, taking shape. Europe is, is slow as, as very often on this, or well, I think uh, that might be a very positive development here. And particularly the fact that there's coordinated by the European Commission might indeed be a positive sign here. In general, I think what the difficulty for Europeans is essentially that they are largely dependent on both sides. On the one hand, you have China being really crucial in the ICT supply chain and, and particularly on hardware, Europe is very much relying on China. On the other hand, you have this strong security alliance, the US still being the main guarantor for security for Europe uh, and uh, deploying most of the software. So Europe is sort of in a quite uncomfortable position, even though uh, Europeans do develop quite uh, essential specialized applications of all this, where they are sort of uh, uh, sitting on the receiving end. And that provides Europe, I think, with rather limited options. And one, uh, in my opinion, is sort of uh, open up this uh, uh, geopolitical box to acknowledge that there's a geopolitical aspect to it. So when we're talking about network security, I think it should also be the European role to actually focus on those issues. And I think that sort of combination that I would refer to as a geopolitics light that takes into effect network security starts from fact try to uh, sort out technological uh, solutions to mitigate those risks, but at the same time be less naive than before uh, and focus on the the background of vendors, talk about trustworthiness, take into consideration that there are political alliances and background and that we have certainly different relations to the US than we have, for example, to China. I think both has to come together. And it seems, at this point at least, that this coordinated process by the European Commission is indeed leading to something similar as this geopolitics light approach. Is that a realistic thing? I think geopolitics light is a polite way of, of talking about what most European citizens want, which is basically to try and stay neutral. 
74% of Germans, 70% of Swedes, 64% of French people, when you ask them, we asked them in an opinion poll a few months ago whether we should take America's side or China's side, wanted to stay neutral. But neither the Chinese nor the Americans want us to stay neutral. Framing it as a US-China choice has been part of the problem in this debate. I mean, there's certainly a US dimension and that, that's there. Uh, certainly there is pressure being put on countries in their bilateral relationships and there's pressure from the US side. Do you want to describe the pressure, actually? Because that could be a nice little um, uh, excursion from our thing. We'll come back to why the choice should be for European sovereignty rather than between China and America afterwards. Okay, I mean, there's three areas, in a sense, that are, that are there from the US side. The first is, of course, that the, the US has these kind of choke point technologies. In essence, the decision that they've taken by putting Huawei on the entity list is a decision that was partly taken with, with Europe in mind, which was to say, in practice, uh, Huawei does not necessarily have the capacity, um, if it's denied access to uh, to certain critical US components, to be able to roll the technology out at the speed that it, it claims. So in that sense, there's a sort of direct pressure that the US has been able to exert on all of this. Secondary is clearly on, on the security and intelligence piece, where there is a basic question that is there, and I mean, it's partly being discussed in NATO, partly being discussed elsewhere, which is, what are the implications of, for intelligence sharing, mobilization? during crises, US forward deployments, and all of these things. And that can be framed in neutral terms, or it can be framed as US pressure on certain specific countries that says, you will not have the same kind of security relationship with us if you move ahead with Huawei. And that's undoubtedly a, a form of, of pressure. And the Chinese pressure, conversely, is to make this a real litmus test for the economic relationship, implicitly or explicitly threatening that in other elements of their economic relationship, um, firms will, will, will take a hit if the wrong decision is, is taken um, by, by European countries. But of course, I mean, the choices that are actually at stake, uh, aside from these pressures, could and, and should be, be made as an autonomous set of decisions. These considerations have to be taken into account. But we are talking about a set of issues that are less primarily about Europe and about China and the US and more about speed of rollout, industrial strategy and European champions, how we deal with Chinese subsidies and IP theft, risk mitigation, relative openness of the two economies, a whole series of other considerations that can be deliberated on without primary reference to, to the US and China and, and the geopolitics of these choices. Okay, that was pretty, uh, pretty impressive list of things. But do, so do you, sorry, do you want to finish your point before I made you go down this route about the pressure? So you're saying it's a mistake to think about it as a China versus US choice? There is a dimension where, of course, there are implications for the, for the relationship with the countries. If it had been possible in some ways to get out ahead of this without getting to the, the stage in which you had these really extensive US diplomatic campaigns, you had this being turned into a litmus test by China, if it had been possible to move relatively early to put in place some of the sorts of criteria that we're, we're now belatedly seeing primarily at the EU level and at the level of some national governments, then it should have been possible to reach some of these decisions without being embroiled in, in this battle. And I mean, of course, there are real questions about what the trade-offs are purely on, on economic grounds about the future of the European telecom sector and, and, and how we think about Nokia and, and, and Ericsson versus Huawei uh, writ large, a whole series of other questions that could have, been, could have been addressed at a much earlier stage. And I think will be very important for a number of future technologies as, as well. If, if it gets to the point where it's in, at the stage that we got to with, with, with 5G, it becomes vastly more politicized than it, than it needed to have been. So, Amy, what does all this mean for the future of the internet? 
So it's interesting. I think that thinking about the future of the internet at this point limits our capacity to understand the various ways in which this is going to impact the way that the world works. I think the internet is probably the technology of the last two decades and certainly is going to remain prevalent. How we conceive of how the EU, China and the US approach technology and scientific research is going to impact so many, many different areas, whether it's in space research, whether it's in genetics, in healthcare, in green tech, technology. And I think that what we're seeing at the moment is a sort of techno-nationalist conception of what these things mean. And that's played out in economics and it's played out in security. But what you haven't seen as much, despite lip service to it, on certainly on the EU and the US side, is a concept of why it is that it matters that democratic open societies be at the forefront of developing these technologies. China is certainly thinking about it. In Beijing's terms, it's really not just about economic supremacy, and it's certainly about security supremacy, but it's not just about that either. It's about proving the Chinese model and proving the success of the model, and then deploying those technologies um, and sort of basic science in ways that support the Chinese state and support the Chinese, Beijing's idea uh, of the way that the world should work. And we're not seeing that from democratic and open societies, and we're certainly not seeing an investment in basic science and basic research that you were seeing, um, you know, two decades ago. So, Tim, do you buy that characterization that Amy laid out, that this is a a choice between open societies and closed societies, an open and a closed technological sector? Or is that just American propaganda to allow it to force Europeans to choose American over cheaper Chinese technologies? Can I just say, I do not think that this is a choice between the U.S. as the open version and China as the closed version. The U.S. version of technology has been a commercial thing, right? It's been purely about applying internet technologies in ways that get Facebook and Google and whoever else to have far more money than they should have. It's not been about scientific advancement for public good. Um, We haven't seen that kind of investment that we used to see in the past, the the investments that led to the internet in the very first instance. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I absolutely uh, see both sides that Amy just mentioned. I think, indeed, from a Chinese perspective, it is very much about the survival of the regime, I think, and the idea also that is behind one-party rule. And uh, that, again, has uh, several dimensions. One is indeed to prove that the Chinese model is viable or even superior, indeed, uh, and that has implications in terms of political values in, in saying that, look at our technology, how we are sort of handling by means of new technologies, very diverse and huge society surveillance is this one aspect, the social credit score system that China is developing at this moment is another where huge found variety of data and criteria are collected and through algorithms is then uh, or is then calculated from algorithms here that vastly impact the lives of Chinese people. There's great variety of experimentation at this point in China. So there's no national system in place at this, at this moment. So we don't exactly know how this is going to play out in the future. But that's sort of one dimension, the social engineering the social control aspect where China indeed wants to prove superiority of its own model and approach by means of technology. But the second is also to say, and that I think both of my colleagues have mentioned already before as well here, is sort of the economic dimension to say, well, the state capitalist system that China runs on 
uh, proves uh, its superiority, it proves uh, how successful it is. Uh, look at uh, Shenzhen and how fast it has developed and it is competing with the Silicon Valley right now. So that's also a story, I think, that is very much playing to the narrative and the legitimacy of the one-party regime that is very crucial from Beijing's perspective. Okay, so we have got a bunch of new European leaders who are starting to take up positions in Brussels, heading out the European Commission, the European Council, a new high representative for external affairs. If you had to give them three or four pieces of advice, Andrew, um, in terms of how to position Europe in this new technological war that we are seeing ahead of us, what would you say? There's a few elements to it. I mean, first of all, obviously on on anything to do with these questions at the moment, there's a huge do your homework uh, agenda on all of this. Um, All the questions around industrial strategy, AI strategy, none of the capacity to compete in this environment is going to be effective or or possible without um, a huge amount of work being done in these spaces first. There's a defensive side on this as well. I mean, there's just a how do you improve your internal competitiveness? Uh, How do you improve your technology ecosystem? How do you fund some of these major industrial projects? making progress in these areas, you're just not going to be able to compete effectively. There's a defensive piece of the agenda as well, of course, which is how do you defend the integrity of your your system? How are you even able to maintain some degree of mutual system openness to other economies and not have the, the system that you've and rules that you've developed be abused on Chinese side? So, of course, there's a number of uh, measures that are currently being uh, discussed where they make progress in, in the next few months, whether it's the procurement instrument, uh, whether it's strong trade defense measures, a whole series of these uh, sorts of pieces as well, there's going to have to be a hugely greater level of coordination with allies and partners on this. Otherwise, there is a real risk that you're going to see internal fracturing and internal decoupling as well. I think that's the risk that we're seeing with what's playing out on the US-China side at the moment, that essentially if the US moves to unilaterally restrict access to China and a number of these sectors, it's going to start having implications on the transatlantic economy as well. You're going to have difficulties facing European firms, and you may potentially have a kind of Iranization of, of what's playing out on the China front when it comes to export controls. When you say an Iranization, that, that you mean that Europeans will be forced not to trade with and to share things with China in the same way that they are with Iran? Yeah, I mean, at the extreme end, that's where you get to on this. And some of these restrictions haven't yet been finalized in the US, but once they are, I think you will start to see ripple effects in which US industry, US uh, lawmakers start looking at how China acquires some of these uh, technologies from from uh, around the world. You're already seeing that to um, to a certain extent, but I think that's really going to step up. And there needs to be a much uh, more evolved um, uh, discussion between a number of partners, with the US, Europe, Japan, and others on where to strike the balance. Still very much underdeveloped at the moment, and we'll have and and I think some of that can be initiated by Europe. The risk at the moment is that the US is going to reach some decisions on on this, and then it's going to turn around and try and enforce them with others, including on the European side. Okay, so Amy, what's your advice to the new institutions? So first of all, stop treating science and technology and exercise in job creation and economic growth. Instead, invest in basic scientific research, open doors to science and engineering talent from 
around the world while doors are being closed because there's a real opportunity there to become a magnet for that talent and see science and technology and technological innovation as ends in and of themselves. And then I think the sort of the macro thing is we're really missing at the moment in, in the democratic world an articulation of a vision for the future that embraces technology, embraces change, and doesn't just lament all of the things that we've lost and instead says, this is how we use tech, science and technology to improve people's lives. This is how we use it to improve the delivery of public services. This is how we use it to sort of just improve democratic society writ large. And I think the EU right now has the capacity to exercise that kind of moral authority. Great. And Tim, last word to you. One pillar is indeed strengthening industrial policy. And I think here it's it's finance, yes, but as it has also already been indicated here, it's also a matter of culture. It needs to provide more space and also provide common rules throughout the EU that sort of set a broad framework for innovation. And that also speaks then to access today that in line with EU norms. The second pillar here is that Europe needs to aim and spread its own norms and institutional mechanisms. Globally, that is obviously a challenge, but I think GDPR here, point, the case in point that is referenced very often. Another, I think, that is less looked at is technical standardization of 5G that has been mainly done in the third generation partnership project, it's called. And that is very much built very similar to the model of ETSI, which is the standard setter, the European standard setter and technical standardization for mobile communications here. That's, these are sort of first signs uh, or, or maybe examples that one could build upon and, and reflect upon how to, how to broaden that minor successes here uh, to other areas. And most importantly, I think, is the third pillar to start and, and learn to think strategically about interconnectedness. I think technical standards are, again, a very good example here. They were used to be seen as facilitating interconnectedness as being sort of non-political. But I think we really need to understand sort of the geopolitical potential all this has and think of this in strategic terms. And that leads me to my last point. As I said in the very beginning, if one thing positive is happening here, I think 5G Huawei saga has actually taught the Europeans that we have to act in unity. Coordination, it might be a good time for coordination here since many states around Europe are realizing they can't do that alone. What a positive note to end on. So we all look forward to Europeans coming together to the development of greater European sovereignty and to the new leadership listening to this podcast and enacting the small Stadar Rulish agenda for uh, technological <laughs> autonomy in, the, in this new world of bipolar competition. Do let your friends and family and other acquaintances know about how great this podcast is if you've enjoyed it by giving us a, a ratings or a review on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us on. But for now, from Andrew Small... Amy Studdark, Tim Rulich, and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. Research for VTR's podcast is Jonathan Hackenbosch, and our editor is Apple Reaping. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.